Welcome to another Hemlock Knots interview. Uh, this is Dustin Grady, and we've got Ryan Fisher, known as the DeFight Explorer. Ryan, welcome. Thanks. Thanks Happy to me. have you. And we have Mark Curtis in the background running our camera angles and everything in our slides. So thanks, Mark, for being here. Yep. Uh, so this is a lot of fun. Ryan has an interesting story, has an interesting background, interesting perspective, and we're going to dive into some of that. Uh, includes topics on, obviously, your work in the Heartland model, but also uh, some stuff on polygamy and especially the Nauvoo Temple and some interesting stuff with church history. So uh, first, I want you to kind of tell us and everyone who's listening just a little bit about your background uh, with with Nephite Explorer. I, I bet we have listeners that maybe haven't heard of that, don't really know what that's about. What is that? How'd you get involved in that? Et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Yeah. Um, I came from a traditional LDS background and um, about 10 years ago, I came across some researchers that were um, making connections between um, archaeology in the Midwest that seemed to verify and have close parallels to what was written in the Book of Mormon. And um, these researchers just like grabbed my attention. I was like, this is the coolest stuff. And I come from, um, I was in, in the TV world uh, at the time working as a photojournalist for uh, National Geographic Productions and things like that. And uh, and so I just started hounding these guys and following them around with a camera. I think I'd do a documentary about it. Um, so I went throughout the Midwest documenting the archaeological sites that were identified by Joseph Smith as connections to the Nephites, Lamanites, and uh, just started gathering this research. And it quickly became apparent that there was so much there to explore that I could never fit, fit, fit it into a single documentary just as a side project. So I formatted it for a TV show, um, pitched it to a couple different uh, stations, and um, out of all of them, surprisingly, KJAZ um, and the program director was actually non-LDS, had the most interest in it. And so they started running running my pilot and uh, the first season of that. And and uh, it was on air for about four years on Sundays until the station got sold. And so that's how the project got started. It was just a side interest, a personal curiosity of myself, um, which was really born out of um, an interest in Book of Mormon geography that I got from my dad when um, I was younger. He had served a mission in Guatemala uh, he was a marketing manager for Microsoft over Latin America. And so we'd take business trips down there and um, explore the ruins, looking for connections to the Book of Mormon. Um, and so I did that all growing up, and and it was a fascination of mine. But the problem was is we really never found that concrete evidence of um, Book of Mormon connections in Mesoamerica. There's definitely some influences, some like teachings and and um, and things like that. But um, the two really didn't line up, and that was okay. It didn't like cause me to doubt the Book of Mormon or question my faith at all at the time. Um, um, but that uh, curiosity was reignited when I found researchers that were um, making even stronger connections with the archaeology of the Midwest. And then that led me into looking into, well, what did Joseph Smith actually teach about this? What do we have from church history that um, identifies Nephite lands 
And it turns out all that research or most of it that we contribute actually to Joseph Smith lined up with the established the place where Zion was to be established as the same place where Nephite, the Nephites and Lamanites lived out their existence. Um, so that show was about exploring those parallels and and seeing if we can gain further insights into Book of Mormon geography and what does that mean for uh, for understanding the Book of Mormon and uh, the Gospel of Jesus Christ in general. So that's where that came from. Okay, well, you've got some great insights on, you know, church history. And so uh, when I heard your presentation a little over a month ago, uh, you had a really interesting connection between all of that work that you've been doing for years, which obviously has made you an expert, in my opinion, and probably in the opinion of many of your viewers that have seen your stuff. I hope not. <laughs> I, well, you know, not too many people know as much as, you know, you and Wayne May and others on the subject, you know, most of us are kind of in the dark and like, Oh, interesting. That's a, that's a neat book or a neat documentary or a neat, whatever that I just read or saw. And I, I know that's me personally. So how, tell us how you got into church history. Like what, what led that effort to start looking into it? Uh, and how did you discover um, how did you start getting into noticing that something was going off, something was going maybe off the rails in church history that you didn't see before? That was an interesting connection. So talk about those two things for a second. Sure. Um, when there's, there's basically two camps, there's the Mesoamerican camp, which um, advocates a Mesoamerican setting for the Book of Mormon that all happened down in Guatemala, Honduras, um, and then there's um, those that believe that it happened, that the Book of Mormon took place in in North America, um, in the Midwest. And and so as I started, so I, I came from, my background is I was a journalist for Network News. And, and so I started applying the journalistic techniques of sorting through all of this to try and find out what um, is right, what's wrong, what is based on opinion, what's based on something that's credible. And if you go back and look into what Joseph Smith actually taught about it, and what we're talking about, I mean, Joseph Smith claimed to have had visions. I mean, Moroni took him away in vision and showed him things that um, that pertain to the Book of Mormon and coming forth of the plates and the, the nations, the Nephites and their conflicts. I think Lucy Mack Smith said that um, on one occasion he uh, would gather the children around in the evenings and talk to them about the Nephites and about their civilizations and their uh, contentions and their culture. I think her exact wording is something to the effect is as if he had lived his life among them. And so he had a greater understanding of who the Book of Mormon peoples were and what that um, account was all about than we even can come close to appreciate. Um, and so if we gather everything that he's actually said about where they took place and, and things like that, then um, he makes it pretty clear that he believed, and many of the early saints believe, that um, the places they were trying to establish Zion were the very places where the Nephites lived and died, where they, they suffered the consequences of iniquity, where they um, rejoiced in the blessings of righteousness. It all happened on the same land. 
and that the patterns in the Book of Mormon are even more relevant to us today. And and so that's really where Joseph Smith was at. And there's a few quotes here and there that have been taken out of context um, about the promised land being North and South America and things like that. Um, but if you look at the totality of what Joseph Smith actually taught with um, what was his understanding, and we just have bits and pieces here and there, um, it seemed pretty clear that he was pointing to right here in America. And as I investigated that and found that the archaeology actually supports that, I mean, with incredible accuracy, there's a, there's a mound in um, Enon, Ohio, that on Zion's Camp March, um, I believe it was, uh, Joe Smith passed that mound, and he said, um, he made note that the, the spirits of the men who were buried in that mound were angry with them and um, identified them at, associated with the Jaredites. Well, since then, that mound has been excavated and carbon dated um, the remains of that mound that fall right into the Jaredite timeline. Like, you know, nobody should base their testimony on archaeology right. and robbery and things. You know, that's not the point. But um, the more and more I look, and I spent about 10 years looking into these um, connections, the more and more I look into it, the more I'm like, dang, you got that right. Like, how did he know that? And uh, and it just leads me to believe that he wasn't stating opinion. He wasn't stating things that were um, guesswork in any ways, but he actually knew a lot more than we appreciate. So to get back to your original question on um, the church has been pushing a Mesoamerican setting for the Book of Mormon for the better part of 75, well, last 50 years, 75 years, pretty heavily. Um, and that's why we ended up with uh, pictures and paintings of um, Christ at Chichen Itza with right. the Mesoamerican temple ruins behind them. Um, those kind of things to most church membership get established in their mind and their, in their views as established doctrine. If it's a painting hanging in our, in our chapels, it's, then it accepted. Must be, it's accepted doctrine. It must be totally worked out and there's nothing open to debate. And to see the church with its artwork and then with uh, many other, um, many other financial endeavors supporting um, archeological work in Mesoamerica and stuff, um, drifting further and further apart from what Joseph Smith taught and believed um, cause it caused me to be, to uh, question like, wait, is this established doctrine or has it been opinions of men that have been established as doctrines? You know, the scriptures talk about um, the precepts of men or, or men teaching for commandments, the doctrines of men. Right. Right. And, um, this wasn't commandments or anything, but it's been a cultural doctrine for so many years and that it's almost been established as an actual doctrine um, within the framework of the LDS church. And so to see the disparities between Joseph Smith's testimony with the Zelf account, um, which is another account where he, they unearthed the bones of a, um, of a man um, on the Illinois river in a mound and Joseph Smith identified those bones as belonging to a white Lamanite named Zelf who fought in the last great struggle of the Nephites and Lamanites. I mean, was he stating his opinion? If, if you believe that he was a prophetic revelator, a seer, then you have to take that stuff seriously. 
And so those kind of things take us in a very different direction, you know, thousands of miles away from where the church was pointing. And you have academic institutions at BYU and elsewhere that are all pointing heavily hard towards South America. Millions of dollars have been spent pursuing um, evidences of the Book of Mormon uh, down in Mesoamerica. And I got to a point where, for me personally, the question was decided um, very easily. And it didn't have anything to do with archaeology or the statements of Joseph Smith. What it, the, the nail in the coffin for def, deciding where it happens has to be the promises and prophecies in the Book of Mormon, which talk about a land that is a choice land above all their lands that will be blessed, that will have no kings on it, that will be a bastion of liberty for the whole world. Um, all the blessings and promises that are, those are the identifying marks of the promised land. And they don't fit Central America. I mean, if anybody's been there, you can't even drink water. You know, we're talking about a place where most things want to kill you if you're out. <laughs> past and, 9 p.m. Yeah, past 12. <laughs> Talking about spiders and things. It's a difficult place. To oh, different out. kind of, different kind D- of. Di- difficult place. But that too, it's, it's. The, the crime and the corruption and everything, it has not, I mean, I love the people down there and I love the culture and everything, but the promises of the blessings that befall the people have squarely fallen on the shoulders of Americans. And I don't mean this in an aggrandizing way, but if anything, it's like us Americans have to, have to acknowledge God as a source of these incredible blessings that was the Book of Mormon says um, that the Nephites weren't able to achieve, but they were reserved for a future people. So the blessings and the promises and the promises and those those are the attributes of the promised land that um, can only be within the confines of the United States of America, North well, America. And and what I remember particularly that I really liked that you pointed out was in addition to the blessings, you have the opposite end, which teaches just as much. Curses, the curses. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when we're looking at, as you point out in the Book of Mormon, and of course, we, you know, we don't have time to go into all, all that, but uh, um, but we'll put a link, by the way, in, in here for people to be able to see his presentation in the, in the comments towards the end so you guys can check it out. But the curses, you start to notice, wait, with these blessings, you can tie some things, as you're just mentioning, to... to the land of America, United States. Mm-hmm. But then when we're looking at church history and we're thinking about the curses mm-hmm. that, that the Book of Mormon people were under and all the warnings from the prophets in the Book of Mormon to their people, and and then we pay attention to what happened in church history and read some of the Doctrine and Covenants of they're getting moved from place to place, they're getting chased out of places uh, where they're supposed to be. They're supposed to be in, in Zion, right, in Jackson County. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they... Sub- supposedly get chased out of Nauvoo, mm-hmm. uh, and yet they're supposed to be there. Uh, so so talk, talk a little bit about how you're coming to re- discover that and realize that. Yeah, so the overarching curse or warning that um, that makes the most sense is comes from the book of Ether. I think it's chapter 12 where Ether um, says that this is choice land and the people of the land have to serve God or they shall be swept off, right? Um, that's... That's what's facing us. There's the promise of all the blessings, and um, we've experienced that. But if they don't serve the God of the land, who is Jesus Christ, they will be swept off. And then you look at church history, and you it's 
Well, look at the Book of Mormon, for example. That's the ultimate conclusion of the Nephites. They were swept off the land for their own iniquity, right? And um, the Lord had mercy upon the Lamanites because they kept a few laws. One of them was in uh, Jacob chapter 2 and 3. Um, Jacob identifies one of the laws that the Nephites were in violation of that the um, Lamanites were not in violation of, which was a law given to their father Lehi, which states that um, they should have one wife and concubines, they should have none. Right. So um, that's just one example of a law that is upon the land, and Jacob ties this to the very land. And that's what's been so eye-opening to me about um, understanding where the land is, is you can now know that the land is actually a major character player in this saga of the redemption of Israel and this restoration and the establishment of Christ's church on earth both in ancient times and modern times, if the land, if we know where the land is, then we know the requirements for the people on that land. And we also can identify the curses. So, so ether talks about, you'll be swept off the land. And then we have in church history, we have multiple accounts from Kirtland to Missouri to Nauvoo of a chosen people of God, just like the Nephites, a first generation of people of God, um, striving to, live up to the expectations of God on that same land, but more often than not reaping the curses and the consequences of not living up to um, the light and the the burst of light that was uh, shown forth to them and the expectations God had. So um, the theme that's throughout the Book of Mormon, and it states it so many different places that if you don't, if you don't live up to um, what God asks of us, then you'll be moved out of your place. You'll be swept off the land. The land will be given to your enemies. Those are the kind of consequences. So I started wondering if there was a connection between um, the the continual swept off the land or forced off by their enemies between the early church. Well, as you're talking about this, uh, let me pull up this uh, slide of yours and just put it here over the screen for a second. So when you're thinking about this and you've been doing all this study, Um, this idea of where is the land and where is church history going on. Talk about the significance of what we're seeing on this uh, picture here. Um, well, uh, what I like about that picture is you can see that there's a very green, lush, prosperous part of North America. And it's the heartland of the United States, the eastern half of the United States. Um, and it's the most fertile, rich soil anywhere found in the world. It's obviously a blessed land. And Nephi identifies that the Gentiles who were um, came out of captivity would come to that land. And we all know that he was talking about pilgrims and Puritans that came over to North America and they came into the New England area. And then moving east or westward from there, the Ohio and Mississippi River Valleys are my understanding as the core and primary spot of the Nephite lands. Not only is Which is where we call the heartland. The heartland of yeah, the United States. The United States. And and then um when Joseph Smith started the restoration of um the church, that's the same places where um the early saints were trying to establish Zion. That's where Adam on Diamon is and it's 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 the interior of the United States between the Appalachian Mountains and the Great Plains. So, so you so you talk about not only is that significant to this prosperous area, but then this idea of this body of saints 
being led by Brigham out of that area into this, what from this view looks like a, just a wasteland, um, mm-hmm. that that becomes scripturally significant, right? That's the idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a special land. I mean, just it, it, it's just like the land of Israel in um, the Near East. The land of Israel is defined as a very specific land among other lands. You know, in um, in the Old Testament, it's it, in Numbers and in Ezekiel, uh, the Lord defines the promised land that was set aside for the children of Israel and the posterity of Abraham as a specific land. For, it goes from this valley to this mountain range, from this sea to this river, and it was about 300 miles long and as little as 80 or 90 miles wide. It's not hemispherical and it's a very defined land. And then the promises of God and the blessings and the cursings are confined to that land as well. And that's the story of the Old Testament. Um, the, the, the Jews, the Israelites were wandering around in the desert off the promised land and they weren't allowed to go into the promised land until the first generation of, of uh, people that rejected God. Um, died off, and then they were able to obtain the promised land. They were just wandering around on the perimeter of that for 40 years until God allowed them to obtain the promised land. And it's no different in America here. Um, Our promised land here seems to be a lot larger than that, but it's by no means hemispherical. And I I haven't found any evidence that it's even um, continental but it's specific defined land to that spot. So if we have the Book of Mormon, and the Book of Mormon is a record of the deed restrictions for that land of the, then knowing where that land is and knowing those restrictions or those consequences and blessings, that can give you a completely different view of the events of church history. Because there was consequences, no one would argue that they weren't cursed in some way or they suffered greatly in um, certain ways and were blessed in amazing ways as well. And the player and the missing piece of all that is understanding the properties of that land that they were on. And that can really kind of, for me, fill in the questions of why things happened why they happened and the way they happened and uh, what really went down. So with, okay. With that in mind, yeah, make sure I have the right thing here. With that in mind, as we're talking about, you mentioned Jacob two in the book of Mormon and why that's really significant. Uh, in fact, we'll post, we'll post a, a really good link in the description after this live is over so that our viewers watching this, now can come back and see it and anyone on the replay can see it a great breakdown of that chapter and how it points out quite clearly some big issues with polygamy mm-hmm. uh and and you go over those in that presentation you gave so um and obviously on hemlock knots uh markers has compiled a really large uh, source of timeline etc and by the way anyone listening please know that we're always trying to add more to it so Always reach out to us if you, there's ever any sources you think might be missing on the website. Check it out. Let us know. Uh, however, that there is a big thing that we spend a lot of time on um, uh, for tonight. I want you to touch a little bit briefly on how that came to be something that you were thinking about and were concerned about or even had an idea of trying to figure it out. Tell a little bit about that story. 
Um, sure. Uh, a number of years ago, um, we were um, in Nauvoo and we're staying at uh, um, an original pioneer house um, from the Nauvoo period. Um, it was on Airbnb and we stayed there with some other people um, doing some church history tours and stuff. And, and um, my wife picked up a book on, on the shelf and she just randomly opened, open to it. And it seemed to be, uh, it was some sort of love letter or something from that claim to be from Joseph Smith to um, a prospective young sister that he uh, was courting. And um, it was really disturbing to her. Um, and what it did is it, it, it reignited, I guess, or brought up all of these suppressed feelings and problems with um, the story that we've been told that Joseph Smith was courting other women and secretly marrying them behind his wife's back. Uh, for years and that he was, you know, lying for the Lord about it the whole time. Um, this is what, you know, our young women, our women in the church are asked to accept, which is a really tough thing to accept. Um, it undermines his credibility, his character. Um, it, it undermines a lot of the, the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ when you take that position. And that was really difficult for her. Polygamy wasn't even on my radar at that time, but, um, it, uh, it bothered her. And so I'm like, all right, let's, let's figure this thing out. And as we're diving into it and looking at the scriptures that, um, either support or, uh, condemn polygamy, one thing jumped out at me in, um, in Jacob's sermon in chapter two, in which he's, he's coming to the first generation of Nephites I mean, Jacob is Nephi's brother. He has, this is the first generation that's been born in the promised land. And they're immediately falling into really gross iniquity and crimes. Um, two of which that he mentions in those chapters, the first one being seeking after riches and not caring for the welfare of uh, the poor, but seeking after riches. And then the grosser crime which was a law given to his father, Lehi, which is probably contained, I'm sure, in the lost 116 pages right. in the book of Lehi, which we don't have, um, is that they were they were excusing themselves and committing whoredoms because of the example of David and Solomon in the Old Testament. They were taking um, more than one wife and concubines. And Jacob had to go to the temple and denounce them for their crimes, as, as he put it, because it was a crime. It was a law. Now, if that was a law given to the Lehi, and this was a law upon the promised land, got me thinking, like, well, if this was an established on the promised land, and I know where the promised land was, could that law and violation of that law bring down condemnation on the early saints that also fell the first generation of the restoration saints that also fell into that iniquity or chose to go down that path. And, and as you read Jacob's sermon, I started looking for um, the identifying marks of whether that applied to church history or not. And, um, and we could spend, you know, a whole hour just talking about Jacob chapter two and three, and that would be great. And I'd love to do that. Um, but to sum up some of the points, the consequence for um, for violation of that law, as Jacob says, 
is that the lands of your inheritance will be given to your enemies. And then you look into what happened in the Nauvoo period that they had lands that they inherited. They were trying to establish Zion. They inherited promised the promised yeah, land. Yeah, DNC is pretty explicit on a, a lot of those inheritances. Mm-hmm. You know, we got the Lord saying through Joseph and so and so, telling so and so this plot of land. I mean, that's even in the Doctrine of Covenants. And, and outside of the Doctrine of Covenants, there's even more records of that, that they were literally been being given pieces of land in the Zion area mm-hmm. uh, to live on for them and their generations. But all of a sudden, they don't have them. Yeah, and nobody can argue that they lost their inheritance. So the question we have to ask is, why did they lose their lands of their inheritance? Yeah, God doesn't just let that happen. No. I mean, this is this is the lands of their inheritance. And Jacob says, and that's a really weird thing in Jacob's like, all right, if you don't do this one thing, then uh, I'm going to take away your land and give it to your enemies. You know, that's a really strange consequence. But it that's exactly what happened with early saints is, is the lands of their inheritance were primarily all given to their enemies. They, they lost it all. I mean, well, well, and as you're given that example, um, you mentioned the, the last 116 pages, which undoubtedly tells us exactly how they, they lost the land of Nephi. Mm-hmm. Cause that was the land of their inheritance. Uh, and we just have, we just have this brief account that all of a sudden, Mosiah is being inspired to get the righteous out of there. And so they did. And then the Lamanites come in and destroy and take over. And then, you know, we just kind of pick up in, in the words of Mormon and, and Mosiah where all of a sudden that's not where they live anymore. They live in the land of Zarahemla and mm-hmm. for the rest of the book of Mormon until, you know, that is a major theme that we have to look at and say, well, Jacob gives them that warning. We miss a big part of the story, as you're saying, so we can only speculate. But we do see the consequence. We do see what he said happen, and then you immediately say, well, wait a second. We also are seeing the same consequence in church history. Mm-hmm. So what's the missing piece? Is it polygamy? That's the question, right? Well, the missing piece really is that they're on the same land, and so the consequences are the exact same. And then the question becomes, okay, what was the... Uh, iniquity that caused them to lose the land of their inheritance. So that's the next question that this line of thinking re- reasons to. And that's the hard one because people don't want to go down the path that's especially many of us. I don't personally have pioneer ancestry, um, but much of the LBS church comes from the pioneer ancestry. And so we want to honor and respect the triumphs and, and the faith of our fathers, of course. And I totally understand that. Um, but the scriptures, they're, they're, they're a tough thing because they're a reflection of the sins of Israel in right. every generation. And we want to, we can easily look at, oh, the children of Israel were iniquitous or unrighteous because they were doing this and right. it spilled out. And the Nephites, oh yeah, they were totally messed up and, Lamanites, Jaredites, you can go through the scriptures and easily see what they were doing wrong, but it's a really difficult thing to po- to point the finger and look yourself in the mirror and say, wait, are we, as my ancestors, are is our church also guilty of some of those things, some of those same behaviors, those same patterns, those same turning to iniquitous behaviors? That's a hard thing to, that's a hard thing to, 
because we all want to be on the winning team. We all want right. to be so, right. So it's easier to judge our neighbor and yeah. I'm fine. Yeah. Yeah. And it's easy to think we're the good guy. And it's so mm-hmm. ironic that as you point that out, that those patterns are in the scriptures, the same uh, scriptures also show the pattern of that um, denial. Mm-hmm. The, well, Blindness no, we, we're... We're righteous. I mean, our fathers screwed up, and we can tell they screwed up because all of the prophets in the scriptures told us they screwed up. But mm-hmm. we're fine, and we mm-hmm. see that over and over and over again. We, we, we obviously see it happening when Jesus is confronting the the Pharisees, Sadducees, etc. We see it uh, throughout the Book of Mormon. It, it, you know, when uh, when Alma's going about preaching quite a bit, for example, or Samuel the Lamanite, um, or Nephi in the Book of Helaman, uh, they're coming to these groups of Nephites that are just like, uh, no, we're totally legit and we're fine. And how dare you prophesy that you'll be destroyed. I've been to die to King Noah, mm-hmm. speaking of, you know, yeah. many wives and concubines. So all of those are examples of that inability to see where we're apostate or where we're off track or where we're whatever. Um, and I think the difference here that makes it maybe even harder is that um, we're trying to see backwards 170 years, whatever, to our ancestors and see that maybe they might have been when we've been, te- like you said, we've been told that, no, everything was fine. Everything was great. They were just perfectly good. Mm-hmm. That's really hard to come to grips with. Yeah, that's that. the blindness of Israel is the great cursing for any people of God. It's the greatest cursing of not being able to see um, the faults uh, in ourselves. And that's probably like the cursing of all mankind in general is the natural man wants to exalt ourselves in our own ego to a place where we are right, we are good. And and the great tool of the adversary is to take that desire for being a good person and um, steer it in a direction that um, causes harm in some way. Um, everybody wants to be a good person. Everybody wants to be um, in the good graces of God. And it's a tough pill to swallow to, uh, to even contemplate that maybe there's something wrong with, um, our beliefs or, or, um, our, uh, our actions. And that's why the scriptures are such a two way sword there. It's, it's a knife that cuts us because it Jacob's words, when I read his words um, under the, with this early church history in mind and polygamy as the backdrop and what was being embraced in uh, the Nauvoo period, especially Jacob's words, like cut like a knife like to the core. And um, they're, they're beautiful words, but they're also very condemning at the same time. And if you look at the rest of the totality of Scripture, there's nothing in Scripture that corroborates or justifies um, polygamy as a law of God, as a celestial law. Um, but we have multiple accounts, whether it's Lehi was taught to avoid it, um, Nephi and Jacob. Um, those were laws. Replication in the Book of Mormon was not a just man. He uh, Wicked King Noah, you mentioned. Right. He, it specifically says, you know, as Moroni is, you know, kind of s- summarizing that story for us, he's like, Ripplekish was not a good man, and he didn't do what was good inside of the Lord. He didn't do what his fathers did, and he did practice polygamy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> 
And then we go all the way back to the founder of polygamy, which was Lamech, um, you know, the descendant of Cain, who was a really bad dude, you know. And so um, then people come forth. Well, David, Solomon, Moses, they were living polygamy. Abraham. Abraham. And, Jacob, um, and we could spend hours and hours dissecting what this means. But on the surface, um, just because that's what they did doesn't mean that that is, was God's will. Right. And on the surface work in this episode, isn't meant to dive into polygamy yeah. so much because uh, as we're talking about this, we're really just trying to say, okay, here's the framework for approaching a subject that is a heated subject. It's a hotly contested subject by some, some, some don't contest it much at all, but for those who do, it gets really intense. But for this, we're talking about, okay, here is, uh, the promised land. Here's an idea of where they're supposed to be, where their inheritance is. We have types and shadows all throughout scriptural history mm-hmm. of people falling under sin, getting kicked out. The saints mm-hmm. clearly removed. The Lord clearly said in the Doctrine of Covenants that uh, if they didn't obey his law, they would be removed. And if they did obey what he said, they wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. He'd keep them in their place. And the whole idea was to have Zion established. And we know that eventually at some point, as is prophesied, we're supposed to go back. Mm-hmm. So that creates, as you presented, and what I find so compelling, that creates a different frame of reference to say, okay, well then, maybe that is something worth looking at. And if that's something worth looking at, let's see if there are any uh, red flags or anything that pops up out of church history that says, wait a minute, let's look at this. And those are some of the things that you brought to the table in your presentation that we really want to discuss here tonight, which uh, we think our viewers hopefully find interesting. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to cover on before we dive in there? Well, no, like if, if they were really were on the same promised land, then we should see the consequence that, that befell the Nephites in church history. And so that's what I started looking for. And it turns out there's a lot more par- parallels to um, the iniquitous behaviors of the Nephites and the early saints than, than I'm comfortable with <laughs> put it that way. Right. And, and and I think most of us have been when we first discovered it because it is, like you said, you want to be on the winning team. You want to think that you're a good guy. You want to think that everyone who's been the good guy that's, you know, like your ancestors and everything or, or your, your church, your own religious mm-hmm. history, that all of that has been on the winning team, mm-hmm. the good side, the right side. So that's what the Book of Mormon would probably call our traditions. Yeah, right? traditions of our fathers. Traditions you know? of our fathers. What's what has been passed down to us? What mm-hmm. what have those who've gone before been telling us? Right? Yeah, that's like the theme throughout the Book of Mormon is is to beware of the traditions of your fathers and and we've always viewed that, and I've always viewed that as applying to the Lamanites. Right, because it applied to them. They're the bad they're guys. They're the bad guys. So it can't apply to know, us. Yeah. Because we're but, not clearly not them. <laughs> but the majority of the Book of Mormon isn't about the Lamanites. It's about the Nephites. It's about the people that had the word of God and their reactions to it, accepting it, rejecting it, changing it, um, excusing themselves. Um, and so the traditions of the fathers may be that's referring to the traditions of Israel of the righteous group more than it is um, the existential enemy that's out there. Well, and I think it's totally possible that in the book of Mormon, uh, it is telling this story of how this group of people, which in that, in the book of Mormon are usually the bad guys uh, that they have these traditions of their fathers. But uh, something that I think 
is worth considering is this idea that because it's in the Book of Mormon, it doesn't matter who it's talking about in the Book of Mormon because every page of the Book of Mormon is supposedly talking about me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this cometh unto you, O ye Gentiles. It comes unto you. So the, the whole idea when we when we classically say, oh, it's for our day, I think I think we get into such a rhythm of saying that, we have no idea what it actually means. It's supposed to mean that it's for application to the reader of that book in the last days. So from that perspective, it doesn't matter that the bad guys inherited all these false traditions. It's the fact that in the book that applies to me, it talks all about inheriting false traditions. Does that make sense? Yeah. You read me? Mm-hmm. So, so I got to the point where I felt forced to accept that if I believe the Book of Mormon is for our day and I have to realize that it's for the reader and it's for the condemnation of the reader. I used to always believe it was the condemnation of everyone that wouldn't accept the book. Yeah. Moroni is um, writing to the people that he knows have the Book of Mormon. Right. I've seen your day and I know your doings. That's what he says. If we believe that he had a prophetic view of the last day and was compiling the records for our day, then we have to accept that the condemnation stories in the in the Book of Mormon were written because we would fall under the same kind of condemnation or we would be faced with the same type of um, threats to our security and our uh, favor and in the grace in the eyes of God. Uh, Okay. So in that light, you bring to the the table something that some people talk about, but it seems like uh, I had never really heard about it until uh, it was brought to my attention probably about a year ago or so. Uh, maybe I'd heard briefly of it as far as back as three years, but I mean my whole life without hearing about this. And it's right there in our own scriptures. Section 124. 124. Is, well, it's a long section, but you don't have to go very far into the section before you start reading some mm-hmm. phrases that should make our eyebrows kind of pop, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very. So, so talk about uh, what, what was it that you, how was it that you came upon 124 and started seeing something there that you need to look into more deeply? Well, 124 was, um, for those that know their scriptures, are, is the, the section commanding the saints to build a temple in Nauvoo. And, um, and there's some very alarming language in this section because uh, the Lord states, and maybe you can bring this up, Mark, uh, um, that, that he's commanding them to build a temple in Nauvoo for the express purpose of proving themselves, proving their faithfulness, right? And then he gives an alarming declaration. Maybe we can bring this up, see if you can find the... So slide 37. Because I want, I don't want to paraphrase this because it's... Gotcha. I'll pull it up here. So let me pull that up real quick. So, so you guys could read along with this for a second. In section 124, let's pull it up here on the screen. Here we go. Yeah, maybe start with uh, 31. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. And uh, it reads, but I command you all ye my saints, to build a house unto me, and I grant unto you sufficient time to build a house unto me. And during this time, your baptisms shall be acceptable unto me. But behold, meaning the baptisms for the dead, 
But behold, at the end of this appointment, your baptisms for your dead shall not be acceptable unto me. And if, anytime there's an if, that's the big, all right, pay attention here. And if you do not these things at the end of the appointment, ye shall be rejected as a church with your dead, saith the Lord your God. Yeah, those those words are really curious because uh, I'd never heard that. Uh, if I'd read it, I never paid attention to it. Right. It's alarming. It's it's it was a really alarming to me. So what does that what does that mean? What is what does that phrase even mean? Why is it even there? Yeah. Right. That's the question. We have to. We have to ask some questions. Why would the Lord be saying that? Um, what exactly does that mean? Uh, slash, how would that look if it played out? Did it mm-hmm. play out? We have to ask that question. Did it yeah. actually play out? Yeah, it's uh, it's alarming. It's it was an it was an ultimatum, um, and this uh, this kind of came about for me after. Um, visiting uh, Egypt a number of years ago and it's a documentary that I've started um, and I have a few episodes of my show on this but I, I got stopped dead in my tracks when um, I was in a temple in Egypt and um, we were looking for graffiti that um, had been left by uh, previous archaeologists and um, and one and the archaeologists that found the mummies that were given to Joseph Smith that led to the translation of the book of the Pearl of Great Price, Book of Abraham, and everything. The question that I had was: um, Joseph Smith got those during this time period in Nauvoo, the the, the mummies and the papyrus, and I was investigating the Pearl of Great Price, and it appeared that in church history, it had been a continual downward slide of apostasy culminating with the removal of the saints off the land um, from, from Nauvoo in that period. And the question I had was, um, well, first in, we found this graffiti and the graffiti um, that we were looking for was, uh, I believe his name was Labello. Um, this this Italian archeologist that had discovered the mummies that Joseph Smith ended up with to, to um, translate the book of Abraham and the book of Joseph, where we get our temp- a lot of our temple stuff. That's another right. story. Um, he wrote his name and the date, which was 1820. And I'm like, wait a second. So Joseph Smith has the first vision at the same time, these mummies are being discovered that will culminate in the 1840s you know, 20 plus years later, why would the Lord be giving the Pearl of Great Price when we're falling down this path of apostasy? And that was the question I had and it stopped me dead in my tracks. And for years, I didn't know what the answer was. Mm-hmm. Um, when it seems like things are falling apart, Joseph Smith's about to be killed. The church is going to be fractured. Um, why would um, the Lord had already set in motion at the same time of the first vision this 1820, the the mummies, which would lead to um, Pearl Great Price and all this other revelatory stuff at the same time, and um, and so that culminates into the building of the Nauvoo Temple and the efforts to for the Nauvoo Temple, uh, which was to be the um, place for these teachings from ancient Israel to land, as my understanding of it, and so. There's a lot writing on um, 124, and I don't know why there's not more people 
interested or talking about this because the language in here is very alarming that if you don't build this in sufficient time, then you'll be rejected as a church along with your dead. Right. And so that's really alarming to me. And I think it should be alarming to everybody, especially if you know the history of the Nauvoo temple. And so to sort this out, there's the, what I call the Brighamite version of history and then there's Brigham Young only had 40% of the church when the succession crisis happened and he, he went west. So there was a lot of people, including core of the 12 members, that had a different view of how all this went down and what happened. Yeah, um, and figuring and figuring that out can be tough for the typical Latter-day Saint because the Latter-day Saint, a.k.a. me, you, we inherit the the version of history given to us by our church, which is through the Brighamite line. Yeah. Um, and, you know, versus the Strangites under James Strang or the Rigdonites, Sidney Rigdon, or um, the uh, Church of Christ that was done through earlier on through uh, uh, David Whitmer or the reorganized church, of course, the, the RLDS branch, all these different branches. And we're just told from the beginning from our fathers mm-hmm. that, well, they're all wrong, so don't even pay attention, right? So, okay, we'll just, we just eat up our history that we get. Uh, but I think most of us probably didn't even know that it was maybe only 40% and that there were all these other th- things going on, the other people saying, well, no, it should be this, it should be that. And one of those things, when we look at it, is this debate or argument about the Nauvoo Temple and the ultimatum. Right. Because a lot hinges on this. I mean, being rejected as a church along with your dad, that's... That's a, that could be a huge turning point in the saga of the restoration being completely stopped dead in its tracks. Right. You know, dead upon arrival if that happened. Um, and as I tried to figure out what happened, um, if they finished the Nauvoo Temple in time, um, I, I came across a source, source material that suggested that it was very difficult to argue that the Nauvoo Temple was completed. and um, At all. At all. Let alone the on-time portion, which is actually mm-hmm. um, just as important part of the puzzle, as the Lord says, th- yeah. as we read. And I wonder if that's part of the piece of um, why the saints were removed off the promised land. That's what I began to wonder. And so, so, so here's where you started making the connection. Okay, it says if you don't finish this, you'll be rejected as a church with your dad, and you have to do it in the time that I appoint, mm-hmm. which interestingly is vague. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we kind of talked about that uh, and how that might be significant. And then, okay, so if they don't do it on time or at all, right, then maybe that's what kicks them off the land, and that becomes the possible answer, right? Or a, a, huge part of the answer of what is going on why why were we as saints kicked out of the land of our inheritance kicked off of zion kicked out kicked out of zion yeah kicked out of zion uh, yeah i mean i mean people say oh, we already kicked out of zion but but nauvoo and kirtland were cornerstones of zion as the lord mm-hmm. said they're actually little you know little corner pieces at least right. they still had and then finally none at all so uh, let's talk real quick about there. There isn't a whole lot of argument in this area of the two houses versus one house of section 124. However, it does come up. Uh, so let's talk about that briefly. When people read 124, there's a little bit of ambiguity in the wording to to see if the Lord is talking about a commandment to build 
one house that has all the stuff that the whole section talks about yeah. or two separate houses. Cause he does mention specifically at one point in that section and you'll call it the Navu house. So we know we have something called the Navu house. Mm-hmm. So is there only supposed to be a Navu house? Is there supposed to be a Navu house plus a temple? Um, mm-hmm. Talk about a little bit of that. And we've got a slide here to even pull up and show. Sure. And what's at stake is the Lord identifies that the fullness of the priesthood has not yet been restored. In verse 28. Yeah. Verse yeah, 28. Verse 28. And, well, and he so, actually says he has to restore it again. That's course, sure. Okay. That there's um, things that have been hid from the foundation of the world that he wants to restore. And that also, yes. And that's the blessing that awaits the saints if they pull this off. The cursing is you'll be rejected as a church. Okay, so there's the stakes could not be higher, right? The stakes really couldn't be higher in all of this. And so you have to, so looking back, we want to identify, did they complete the Nauvoo temple and did they complete the instructions of the Lord in time? And as you said, um, if you read the um, ambiguity in this, it appears to be there's two buildings that are instructed um, to be built, the Nauvoo temple and the Nauvoo house. Um, Now, some argue that it's just, that it was all the same, but fortunately um, I've been able to find sources that identify uh, that, that was not the case. Um, yeah, slide 48, 48. here. Uh, and, and this is just one, but we've got, or a couple, but we've got more than this. We'll put links, of course, in the description afterwards for anything else, that, for anything that we show, plus anything else that we make reference to. So just be looking out for that uh, later. So yeah. let's take a look at uh, this one here. Yeah. So in section 124, um, there's four men identified as a committee to um, build uh, the house, the, to take on this project. Um, one of those is, uh, Lyman white, and he led a company of men up to Wisconsin to obtain the wood necessary for building these two houses. And in this letter, he wrote back to Joseph Smith, um, dated February 14th, 1844. It's called the black river falls. It's the title of the letter. He says that we calculate that the present prospect for lumber betwixt this and the last of July will be from 15 to 20 hundred thousand, which we deems will be sufficient to finish the two houses, which will accomplish the mission on which we started to this country. He understood that they needed to build two buildings, the Nauvoo temple and the Nauvoo house, which is more of a boarding house um, for the weary traveler in Zion is the language that's in, in 124. Right. Um, but it's also a sacred, it's a holy house. It's a house of learning. Um, and, and it's to work in conjunction with the temple. So he identifies the two houses. It was well known. Um, if you go on to uh, slide 49, um, and this wasn't in uh, my original presentation. I came across it uh, recently. Uh, in This is uh, Joseph Smith's understanding. Um, he wrote, he recorded that uh, on 21st of February, 1843, he urges both the construction of the Nauvoo house and the Nauvoo temple and identifies them in this way for I, for I began it, I will finish it. Not that public spirit here as in other cities don't deny revelation. If the temple and if the temple and Nauvoo house are not finished, you must run away. What did he mean by saying that, that if the temple and Nauvoo house are not finished, you must run away. Everything God does to aggrandize his kingdom. How does he lay the foundation, build a temple to my great name and call the attention of the great, but where shall we lay our heads? The building of 
Nauvoo House is just as sacred in my view as the temple. I want Nauvoo House. I want the Nauvoo House built. It must be built. Our salvation depends upon it. When men have done what they can or will for the temple, let them do what they can for the Nauvoo House. We never can accomplish our work at the expense of the other. That's recorded by um, in Joseph Smith's diary by Willard Richards, yeah. by Willard Richards. And then um, another statement on the 6th of April, Joseph discussed using the 12 to fund raise for the Nauvoo house, something for which he would be unlikely to slight the temple. He notes that there has been, there has been too great latitude in individuals for the building of the temple to the exclusion of the Nauvoo house. Willard Richards Joseph Smith Diary, Discourse, April 6th. So Joseph Smith's understanding was there's two houses to be built. The committee member, Lyman White's understanding there's two houses to be built, that Joseph Smith even says here that our salvation depends on it, just as DNC 124 um, outlines that the consequence is rejection as a church if you do not pass this test of faithfulness by getting these built in sufficient time. Right. So, so then we have this. Okay, so we've talked about the two houses. We, we know there are two houses: this this house of the Lord, the temple, and this Nagu house. Um, and so we'll say, okay, so the, the the temple for sure had to be done on time, or rejected as a church, whatever that means. Um, I'd love to bring up here a quote from Orson Pratt. Uh, I don't have it on the screen, but it will be in the links after the video is done. But here's. Here's this quote from Orson Pratt from uh, Joseph Smith History, September 9th, 1843. He says, there are some blessings. There are some things, however, I want to mention that we learned. Uh, there are great blessings given to the faithful when the temple's finished. I'll speak of some of the consequences that will follow if we don't obey. Then, just as you mentioned, when the temple's reared, God will manifest himself in a peculiar manner. And if we're obedient, he's told us he'll make manifest to us things that we are now ignorant of, which is a really lame way of saying, like you said, things that have been hidden from the foundation of the earth, as section 124 says. Mm -hmm. And then, but fast forwarding down here in the quote, he says, the Lord says, if you build the house in that time, you shall be blessed. And interestingly, even here, he doesn't say what that time frame is. Yeah. Uh, nowhere do we find an actual time reference, but mm -hmm. there was supposedly some amount of time given. The Lord says, sufficient time. Sufficient time. He says yeah. sufficient time. So there is a time reference, but it's just sufficient time. Uh, then here Orson says, but if you shall, but if not, if you don't build it in sufficient time, you shall be rejected as a church with your dead, saith the Lord. And then here's his commentary. So if that house is not built, then in vain all are all our cares, our faith, our works, our meetings, our hopes, our vain also, our performances and acts will be void. So he's pretty explicit in that statement. There are other statements that you can find even in times and seasons is, uh, you know, just like what you said with Joseph, our salvation depends on it. Uh, clearly, he wasn't the only one that understood it because we can see here with Brother Pratt and others in, in times and seasons. We got Parley as well. Uh, we got uh, John Taylor. Um, I know we've got um, Heber C. Kimball making these statements referring to this ultimatum mm -hmm. that the saints understood it. And uh, even after the fraction, as you mentioned, you get the Brighamite faction, the the Strangites, the the Rignites, the RLDS. 
they understood it as well because we get this debate going for a handful of years afterwards, actually for decades, really, yeah. about this ultimatum and did it really happen? And they're trying to point the finger at the Brighamite faction saying, well, this happened and you guys aren't acknowledging it. You guys are pretending that everything's fine, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, that's the debate. Like, was was the temple finished? And, um, and was the Nauvoo house finished? And did the consequences identified in 124 actually come down on the heads of the early saints or not? That's the, that's the question. And uh, that was what I was trying to figure out in, in researching this. So what are, um, what are some big things that help in the debate? Because uh, there, there is a lot of debate. Even if you go back to those decades that I'm referring to, you, um, there's even been papers done on it in, in the past 50 years, rehashing some of those mm-hmm. debates uh, where we can see all these statements about the level of physical completion of the temple. Um, we have in our in the BYU archives uh, uh, some statements about the Nauvoo Temple saying never fully completed or never fully finished. Of course, in the most recent general conference, we have President Nelson saying that Brigham oversaw the completion of the temple, a very vague statement uh, that seems to insinuate that the temple was completed. We have statements from the likes of uh, Richards and Orson Pratt, Willard Richards, uh, mm-hmm. that, um, you know, we did finish it didn't get fully finished, but we didn't have to get it fully finished. It was completed enough. Um, so, so what are some of the things that in that debate that you want to point out and say, well, let's focus on a couple of key things here that are worth noting. So this, the, this um, question is wrapped within the context of the succession crisis. Um, because after Joseph Smith died and the church was fractioned and there was different leaders that um, all vied for control of the leadership. Um, a lot of the statements that you just described came from after the succession crisis, which is all these different factions trying to support their legitimate claims or Ill- illegitimate claims, whatever you want to call it, to the rightful ownership of church property and uh, the first presidency. So, after the succession crisis, you have to view everybody's testimony from that position. Fortunately, we have, um, so I started looking into um, what kind of understandings did we have before the succession crisis or some, or um, by the people that were actually involved in it. And, and, and Brigham Young wasn't involved in the construction of the temple. He right. was Corman of the Twelve, except for the purpose of possibly fundraising for the right, right. temple. Now, I'm, so I've been trying to look, I looked for um, who can settle this debate on what actually happened. And it's really simple. If we go back to the four men that were charged with the construction of the temple, they were the committee that was over it. Um, There's Joseph Smith, but Joseph Smith was taken really early on. But those four men weren't. One of those was Lyman White. And um, and Lyman White is has a different perspective than the post-succession Christ reformist history that the Brighamites um, put forth on this subject, if I can say it that way. Okay, yeah. Um, so maybe let's go to uh, slide uh, 60. 
See, Lyman, Lyman White's a really important. He's not only a Quorum of the Twelve member at the time, but um, he's identified in DNC one twenty four and other places as highly favored of God. Right. Um, so he, I mean, he was he's been there for involved with the restoration um, for a long time, and God has heaped very glorious praise upon this person. Um. So he has to be considered as um, an important source, you know, um, that should be heard. However, he has been written out of church history for the most part because he went to Texas after um, the death of Joseph Smith with a small group of saints to establish Corner Zion there, which was the instructions Joseph Smith gave him before he left. He didn't and follow Brigham. He yet. didn't follow Brigham, yeah. And so... Um, as such, he, uh, he didn't get to be part of, um, the history in the bring my church, <clears throat> but here's what he had to say after he got to, uh, Texas, he was corresponding with Brigham Young, you know, Brigham Young was still trying to gather everybody that would, um, right. from the fracture, um, to his, uh, to his church and his side. And um, Lyman White um, was Brigham Young sent some missionaries or uh, some, um, to try and bring all the different factions that he could to Utah to join the church and to kind of regroup. Right? Um, he made the same kind of efforts with Lyman White's group, and in correspondence with Lyman White, we get some really interesting insights into um, what Lyman's perception of how things went down with in Nauvoo shortly after uh, the expulsion of the saints from Nauvoo. And then I, just a quick interruption. It's interesting that this letter, um, the RLDS church history library has manuscript of this letter, but we don't. And that's interesting. Uh, and it's consistent because mm-hmm. Wyman is, was not, uh, you know, Brigham and, and those who were with him didn't favor Lyman because he didn't come with them. Mm-hmm. So let's not include anything from Lyman, right? So it's just yeah. curious. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Um, and so Lyman was uh, corresponding with Brigham Young. And uh, in his response to Brigham Young's plea, you know, inquiry to have him come join the Saints and bring his group and his followers with him, he wrote this uh, summary of how it went down from his perspective. This is the, now keep in mind, this is the Lyman White that was on the committee of four identified in section 124 as the principal committee for building the Nauvoo temple and Nauvoo house. If anybody understands when the sufficient time um, is up, it has to be that committee apart right. from Joseph. They're in charge. Because they're in charge of it. They're in charge of procuring all the materials and they're in charge of uh, making sure that thing is done. All right. So here's what he had to say in response to Brigham Young. He wrote, the church mostly went from there, Kirtland, Ohio, to Missouri, where they commenced another house from which they were driven to the state of Illinois, where we were commanded to build a house or temple to the Most High God. We were to have a sufficient time to build that house, during which time our baptisms for our dead should be acceptable in the river. If we did not build within this time, we were to be rejected as a church, we and our dead together. Both the temple and and baptizing went very leisurely till the temple was somewhere in the building, the second story, when Brother Joseph from the stand announced the alarming declaration that baptism for our dead 
was no longer acceptable in the river, as much to say the time for building the temple had passed by, and both we and our dead were rejected together. The church now stands rejected together with their dead. The church being rejected now stands alienated from her God in every sense of the word. So that statement, so this is 18, I think 1851, I think is when I wrote this letter. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's some pretty heavy commentary on not only the idea of what were the implications of that ultimatum, but the fact that this is what actually happened mm-hmm. uh, from his point of view. Um, so that's pretty clear. There's, there's not a lot of ambiguity in his statement. No, he, he understood 124. I mean, this was a committee that was charged with building this huge project. He understood 124. What he's, what he's referencing here is that the marker for when the time has passed is the Lord says that baptisms for the dead shall be acceptable in the river until the, the marker and the sufficient time has passed. And that's the marker. And so Joseph Smith's saying that they're no longer acceptable. That's the marker that was identified in 124. Right. And I can to- I, I can totally understand how this would be over the go over the heads of many of the saints. They're like, wait, we can't do it in the river anymore. 124 says that's the marker. That's when that happened. And- well, as you're talking about that, allow me to throw in um what some might consider a wrench in that argument. And, and we talked about this mm-hmm. briefly the other day and, and I liked the, the perspective I've heard as a rebuttal to that, that, uh, Oh no, that was just Joseph saying, um, the time for doing it in the river was over because the font was done. Um, even though the temple wasn't done, the font was done. So they, they just, they just moved from doing baptisms from the dead, from the river to the font. Now, uh, I haven't, tried to corroborate that yet. I haven't been able to see if that is true that they did actually go to the font, but whether they did go to the font or not, isn't really the question as far as I remember you saying, what's the actual, you know, that that this marker that you're talking about is more of the question. Yeah. Um, 124 states that you'll know that the time, the sufficient time at the end of this appointment is I think the word in 124 at the end of this appointment meaning the sufficient time, the appointment time when they have the window to build the Nauvoo temple at the end of this appointment, your baptisms shall not be acceptable unto the end of the river. Um, so it doesn't matter whether they're, um, it's not about baptism. It's the baptisms is just the marker um, for when the sufficient time has ended. And Lyman White would directly refute that. That's that when Joseph announced that the, baptisms in the river were no longer acceptable to God, that that was the marker that they have been, that they've been warned of when the sufficient time had ended the window of opportunity to build the temple within sufficient time had ended. And it's pretty hard to argue that the Nauvoo temple was ever completed. Um, the, the interior was mostly uncompleted even up until 1846 the Nauvoo house never got off the first floor. Um, they tried to hold meetings in the Nauvoo temple and the floor buckled and people bailed out of the windows. Um, yeah. In fact, uh, I have a couple of statements here on that regard. Uh, before I bring them up, were there any slides of statements like that to pull up or if not, uh, I'll pull up. No, we can summarize those. Uh, you can look them up on their own if you'd like. Well, and we'll have some links to some of them, but uh, I like, I like the description here from 
from some of them as they're trying to describe uh, some the state of the temple. For example, let's see. It has been so. This is from Joseph Smith's son, Joseph Smith III, in 1871. Okay. Um, it has been stated by those whose duty it was to know that the temple at Nauvoo was finished, quote unquote, completed as Joseph designed. Now, as this is a quick uh, side note, even though 124 doesn't say, um, we have throughout the Doctrine and Covenants, through the Revelations, instructions for the Kirtland Temple and the Temple in Zion that didn't get built. And those instructions were pretty explicit that it had to be completely finished and had to be done the exact way as as was shown to Joseph. And so this phrase, that's what it's referring to, completed as Joseph designed or really as the Lord designed. But section 115 gets extremely explicit saying, you can't leave anything unfinished that's supposed to be finished. It says that. 115. 115, yeah. In fact, uh, um, 115, if we're looking at 115, we've got in verse... 12, until it shall be finished from the cornerstone to the top, until there shall not anything remain that is not finished. Mm-hmm. So that statement is pretty explicit in terms of the Lord's standards, or as Joseph Smith III is saying here, quote-unquote, as Joseph designed. So this statement, Joseph Smith Jr. goes on, or Joseph Smith Jr. Jr. III <laughs> goes on to say, this statement can't be true. In no sense can it be said truthfully that any part of the temple at Nauvoo was completed with the possible exception of the main assembly room into which the front door opened. The basement and which was the font was incomplete. The stairway to the left of the font wasn't relieved of the rough boards laid on the risings on which the workmen went up and down. The upper assembly room, that wasn't even accessible. The floor uh, wasn't even laid. Neither were the doors hung, nor the walls plastered. Besides all this, the inside ornamentation was by no means finished, even in those parts, and they couldn't be called completed. There are plenty of persons now living who were frequent visitors to the temple after those who built it left Nauvoo, and they will testify to the same, that the building was not completed. Among them, David LeBaron, who had charge of it for some time, Major L.C. Biderman, Dr. Well of Nauvoo, etc., etc. So, again, we'll put these sources and links in the video description. Yeah, many of the materials that were allocated for the temple never actually got put into use. Right. Um, for example, the veil, there was canvas that was ordered back from back east to uh, to cra- craft veils in the temple. That was repurposed for wagon covers. It was never put into the temple. Um, it's a really hard stretch for anybody to to um, prove that they that the temple was completed in any any stretch of the imagination, which led to um, Brigham Young and others after Joseph Smith to um, have dedicatory ceremonies for the small portions that were completed, um, such as the baptismal font or the upper room or something. Um, They held all these different dedicatory sessions for these small sections um, of it. But, by doing so, they're acknowledging that the entire temple is not finished. Right. That only this room is, and that's why we're doing it. The dedicatory session for the entire temple, if you go to LDS.org, will say it was in the spring of 1846. It was in May of 1846. That the, the official dedication, the public dedication of the Nauvoo Temple was in the spring of 1846. Right, right. Okay, That's what's on LDS.org historical sites. That's, you know... Our history of it. Okay. Now, there's a bigger issue here on whether it was finished or not. We can 
argue that right. all day. Right, because whether whether or not we want to dispute, well, it was finished enough, and, and some people point at the exception clause in 124 where the Lord says, well, and if your, enemies. Your, if your enemies come upon you, then I have to just say, okay, which ironically also has a rebuttal where the Lord said, well, this time you won't be moved out of your place if you do what I say. That's how you know if you've done it right. If you do what I say, the Lord says you will not be moved out of your place. Right. You not be moved. And they, but, but let's just pretend that that clause okay. is yeah. in effect, regardless of that, because as you mentioned, you just you bring to light some other things that we have sources on that say, well, hang on, some stuff is going on here that maybe we don't know about. There's a backstory to... Um, there's uh, there's some other things that are happening behind the scenes while these um, mini dedication ceremonies are happening, and um, maybe I think I uh, emailed that to you the um, the word document of the timeline events for the dedication and sale of the Nauvoo Temple um, timeline, and uh, you might want to make this available to. Uh, polish it up and make it available to the viewers. Yeah, we'll put it, we'll include it in the links after the, it's pretty interesting, but for the sake of time. Yeah, it's um, a long time. I just, you guys know why you're showing it. It's 10 pages, but uh, we'll have this available in our, in our links uh, in the video description. Because this is, this is an important part of trying to sort all this thing out. So, so the dedication, there were seven or eight different dedication um, attempts on the Nauvoo temple. Right. At various times, um, Joseph was killed in uh, June of 1844, and construction continued on the temple um, all the way through the Exodus, where all the saints left. However, what most people don't know about is that early in the fall of 1845, um, Brigham Young, who um, was assuming control of church property and leadership at the time, um, began the process of trying to sell the Nauvoo Temple. This is fall 1845, before any of these dedicatory ceremonies were even held. Right. And um, unfortunately for him and for the, the, the narrative that the Nauvoo Temple was finished and we're still in the good graces of God, this was very well documented because he took out classified advertisements in multiple newspapers and wrote correspondence to uh, clergy in the Catholic Church um, in uh, to sell the Nauvoo Temple as is before it was completed. Right. So by fall, so just a few months after Joseph is gone, we have this beginning of an attempt that was a, a large attempt to mm-hmm. try and sell this building. Fall of 1845. And so it's not done. It's not been dedicated yet. Nope. No, no, no efforts to to, to dedicate it um, have have been, um, especially not the the official dedication, which is uh, spring of eighteen forty six. Before all that happens, um, all these things happen, and we have correspondence from um, from Brigham Young to uh, multiple Catholic figures, um, inviting them to come toward the temple. And the first time it was actually. F- Furnished. Um, I understand the first time that some of these rooms were furnished was in anticipation of showing it. Uh, they were staging the temple with for sale. for sale with the fine furnishings from saints in the area. They would stage the temple with their fine furnishings so that it would look good for prospective buyers. And this this might sound like just a, a convenient story for those who want to just say Brigham was wrong or something like that. And 
just a quick pause in the discussion for our Hemlock Knot viewers, anyone that's new to Hemlock Knots. Uh, we, we have only a vision to try and shed light on, on more sources. That's what Hemlock Knots is all about. When, when Mark and I created uh, this channel, uh, as well as the Facebook group, uh, when Mark created the website, it was always about trying to shed light on more sources so that we could understand better what happened and maybe find a clearer narrative rather than what is probably a more common approach. I have a narrative or an idea in my mind, and I'm now going to come to the table to try and prove it. And I'm going to go and grab all the sources we can. That's not our goal here. So, so yeah. don't want anyone to think that we're trying to say, Hey, look, we're trying to pull off what the RLDS or the string arts or whoever was trying to pull off. And they were trying to prove that, uh, that Brigham wasn't the right branch to go. What we're only trying to do is say, okay, there's some other pieces of information that are available historically. Yeah. Like, like these advertisements, for example, that point to more things that were going on that allow us to say, okay, well, if Brigham was trying to sell the temple and in these documents are clearly showing that, mm -hmm. then what does that mean? Right. So, but uh, let's see, a couple of these sources that you have are, let's see, which slides do you want to be looking at for those? Um, yeah, I, have, I actually, there's uh, in circulation, it's not too hard to find um, one of the advertisements that was taken out, taken out in um, in uh, some periodicals, uh, both uh, I think the Warsaw Signal held some. Um, it's uh, slide 56 is uh, there is uh, um, an image because these periodicals are, are in the historical archive. Right. You can Thankfully, we have up. access to them, right? Yeah, you can go look these up and stuff. Um, and in this one, uh, the agents of the church were Alan Babbitt, Joseph Haywood, and John Fulmer. And uh, they were trying to s dispose of church property, including the temple and a brewery that the church also owned. Um, Brigham Young didn't have, um, didn't try to sell the Kirtland Temple because that was out of his control at the time. A group of Kirtland saints um, that rejected Brigham Young's claim to the, the authority and leadership said, "No, you're not touching this temple. This is in our control." And and um, while he did list it on one of the as one of the properties he did want to sell, it, it was primarily the Nabu Temple that he had control of, and and he tried to sell it for the sum of two hundred thousand dollars is what they were seeking from the Catholic Church. And so this one right here is what's the date on this one? <clears throat> um, that was an advertisement in the New Citizen, fifteenth of May to through twenty third of December, eighteen forty six. And some of these advertisements ran for seven or eight months. I think the one in the Warsaw Signal ran for seven or eight months. So 15 of May is when it started, which means it had to have been uh, purchased prior to then. I mean, if anyone that knows even the slightest bit about publication, you don't just show up in the newspaper mm -hmm. the next day. So uh, and back again. So when was that dedication supposed to have happened? Uh, in May, 1846. So let's just talk about that for a quick second. Just this. Let's pretend that this was the only attempt. Okay. If, if, the, if nothing else happened in the fall mm -hmm. previous to that, which would, or, or in, back in 1844, let's pretend that they were diligently working on finishing that temple. It was all done. Mm -hmm. Uh, they dedicate it in May and same month he's trying to sell it. What does that mean? That's a question. I can only give you my opinion on that, but 
I can't. Well, instead of. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I can't help but believe that if that the dedicatory ceremonies, I mean, you got to understand the word dedication is they're dedicating this temple to God. However, where is their hearts? Where are their intents? And that's what these advertisements and these efforts to sell it and these contracts that they were trying to enter into for um, for selling temple as a nunnery or a, a seminary to the Catholic Church. That shows where their hearts was. And so I can't help but wonder if the dedicatory prayers that were offered in dedicating portions of the temple or the whole thing how could it not be viewed as a mockery to God, knowing what was really going on in the hearts of these men? Well, that's a good question. And here's another good question, because uh, I think if we can throw out questions instead of answers, then uh, those watching will um, be able to think for themselves. So that's a question. Here's another question. If that temple was meant to do all these things that uh, even 124 said, in addition to everything that's reiterated through times and seasons and other statements by Joseph, mm-hmm revealing all these things from the foundation of the earth and all these blessings and all these uh, huge outpourings uh, revealing this higher priesthood that apparently needs to be restored again because the Lord had to take it away, he says, from them earlier. Uh, How does that happen so quickly? Uh, When you're reading, for example, in Times and Seasons from 1843, when we read from Orson Pratt, but you also have these other statements as the apostles are trying to urge the saints to hurry and finish it because, oh, no, we're going to be rejected. Well, all the stuff that they're pointing at is stuff that, that does not sound like it can happen in a single day because you could potentially argue, um, well, I don't remember what date you said it was that they were going to, that they supposedly dedicated, May 26th? Um, or I don't remember what date you said. You said my May. timeline here. Yeah, it's May 18th. The official... But, um, I can find it if you May fifteenth. Is this the the spring of eighteen forty six? May eighteen forty six. Uh, May first, right here, 1st. a dedication ceremony was held. Yeah, there's a private one, but then there was also a public. Oh, one. Oh, so that was not the public one. Oh, it, the public one was right after that, I, I believe. Gotcha. If that okay. wasn't the private. If that was so. Yeah. So let's really let's man. give the benefit of the doubt and say May second. Okay. So that means they've got thirteen days, twelve days. Mm-hmm. Uh, all. All of the saints are supposed to receive these blessings in 12 days. Uh, people people argue, say, well, they've been receiving it the whole time as they dedicated portions. But what I find a little bit antithetical to that idea is that in section 124, the blessings were contingent upon the completion. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Everything's contingent upon the completion of the temple. So, yeah. so, And if the temple was completed then we should have records of all these new revelations that were hidden from before the foundation of the world, right. which I'm not aware of have ever been published or ever been, you know, on that side right. of things as well. So, so the, these are some of the important questions that are pretty simple that uh, a discerning thinker who's not attached to traditions, right? Because yeah. otherwise it's uncomfortable to say, well, no, don't, don't say anything that threatens what I've known all my life, because uh, that's certainly how I used to respond. And thankfully, I, I've been able to get over that. But it is difficult to get over that. And some people watching this video will, may have already turned it off uh, because of some of these insinuations. But if you ask those questions, you're going to be hard-pressed to come up with uh, answers that don't say, well, it's just not feasible that those things happened. Mm-hmm. Now, you could still say they did, 
but now the burden of proof is on you to show, like you said, those revelations or to show that all these things did happen in those 13 days. Because otherwise, like you said, it does not make sense to me why they're trying to sell this thing when it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be the end all be all for the saints in Nauvoo. Yeah. And they haven't been kicked out yet. That doesn't happen for another year. They haven't been moved out of the place yet. But yeah. Yeah, it's supposed to be, I mean, uh, heralding in of a dispensation of blessings that have not been seen since the foundation of the world. And that's a pretty big claim. That's a promise, rather. That's a promise in in one twenty four, and they're trying to get rid of the building and jump ta- and leave town. Like, like all I can think of is what Joseph Smith said in that earlier co- comment. The only explanation is that if you don't feel it, if you don't finish it then you need to run away. You know, you need to run away. Right. Salvation depends on it. It's a, it's a, it's a crazy, crazy story that, uh, unfortunately nobody's talking about. Nobody has, you know, very little people, very few people have even read, I think one twenty four from this perspective as, and trying to figure this out. And it's, it's a tough thing, you know, and now what this means for the current state of the affairs of the church, I'm not going there. I'm not trying to, uh, you know, tear down anybody's faith. Um, this was a tough thing for me personally to research and find this, um, this evidence and these sources because uh, it causes caused me to question many of the foundational beliefs that I've been basing my faith structure on for so many so many years, and challenge it in new ways. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because what right. it shows to me is maybe I had my faith structure based in in trusting in men who are the leaders of my church more than I'd like to admit. Right, and maybe I need to reorient that in uh, in a way to where it's not in men who are all or are fallible. It's not in the arm of flesh, but into the only thing. If we build our foundation on, we cannot fall, which is the rock of Christ. Yeah, and I think I think we would do a disservice if we didn't always emphasize that. That at the end of the day, the goal of true religion, as at least as I seem to notice in the scriptures, is just that. We are mm-hmm. to try and find Jesus Christ, establish a relationship with him by doing whatever he says, and to not trust uh, man or men or women, or as Nephi says, don't trust them unless they are speaking by the power of the Holy Ghost, rather than mm-hmm. don't trust them unless they have a certain title or badge, you know, over their breast saying, I am this particular authority that you can trust, right? Um, mm-hmm. I I can't lie to you, you know, because, yeah. uh, you know. No, said no one ever believable. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I can't lie to you. So, mm-hmm. in this in this uh, light, what happens shortly after that uh, might be considered significant. So, what happens? So, what happens to the temple? Let's do a quick recap there. Yeah. Well, the temple um, gets because. Well, first of all, does it get sold? Does anyone buy it? Yes. Um, it's bought by a gentleman named. In my notes here, um, it was purchased for the sum of five thousand dollars. I remember the amount. I don't remember that guy's name, unfortunately, off the top of my head. It's in the timeline of events here. 
It was purchased um, to David T. LeBaron for $5,000 in 1848. And, um, one of the reasons he was able to buy it for only $5,000 from $5,000 from Brigham Young is because uh, Brigham Young's claim to ownership was so shaky that nobody wanted to buy it. So it was in doubt. So, so people, doubt. people doubted that he owned it. And so they were worried that if they paid him for it, they were going to be had and that the real owner would be able to come forward and, yeah. and say... Yeah, no. so this is a microcosm of the whole succession crisis. Like right. Who has a legitimate claim to church property? And at that time, um, the church was uh, was owned, if you want to use that word, by the First Presidency. Right. And so Sidney Rigdon, who was the only surviving member of the First Presidency, had a legitimate claim to uh, to church property that would have to be battled out in court, of course, um, and so, uh, also James Strang in the Bory Herald, he published, uh, when he took his group of, of people up to Beaver Island up in Mich- Michigan, he published, um, articles, um, crying foul that Brigham Young was trying to sell the Nauvoo temple to the Catholic church and that he had no claim to church property, um, uh, further causing doubts in the mind of prospective buyers. That's, um, the, the Catholic Church was did make an offer to purchase it, but they would not insure it against fire. Um, and so there was a debate over who was going to insure the bill or not purchase it, sorry, lease it from the church. Right. Um, Brigham Young was like, well, if you won't buy it, then at least lease it from us. Um, but that fell through. David LeBaron finally in 1848 gave Brigham Young $5,000 for it and purchased it. However, that was in March of 1848. Um, on in October of 1848, at midnight, the temple was set on fire by an unknown arsonist and uh, was gutted as a result. Um, so, so the temple does not have fire insurance. That was a sticking point with the cat in the negotiations with leasing it to the Catholics. So, like, we'll we'll lease it from you. But we want you to insure it against it. mobs or or fire. Got it. Gotcha. Because I just thought that sounded a little bit ironic that uh, yeah that it burned. <laughs> yeah. There's there's of course that wasn't the only thing that happened to it because then yeah. you have the you have the main front wall standing until yeah uh, until something else comes along. Yeah. So when it was gutted, it lost structural integrity and. Um, uh, David LeBaron sold it to um, to Etienne Cabet, I think is how you say his name, for $2,000, the Damaged Temple, who he was uh, part of a group called the Icarins, who were trying to establish Nauvoo as a communistic utopia. So um, that was the subsequent owner of that. However, um, on uh, May 27th, 1850, a tornado or tornado or storm or windstorm, uh, one of the two uh, hit Nauvoo and toppled one of the walls, and um, that owner decided to uh, demo two more of the walls out of public safety. So by 1850, only the front structure, one wall of the front structure remained. I mean, it had a very short life. 
And then in 1865, Nauvoo City Council ordered the final demolition of the last standing portion of the Nauvoo Temple. And I have a piece of that temple I've been using it as a books book um, bookends a bookend a cornerstone piece that I acquired and I could not find. It. I wanted to bring it and show it to you guys because oh dang, I'll just get another one another my time. My kids don't think it's that that cool. I would think it's cool. Yeah. So the temple was not protected. It met a very swift destruction, and it's up to us to decide whether that was providential or coincidental. And, uh, yeah. Was that a result of what we've been talking about where scriptures are clearly outlining blessings or cursings? If we do what the Lord says, including the attachment to the land, to the, to the location, right? Which is part of this, this argument. What, what is significant about this location or what isn't significant about this location? What's significant about Utah or insignificant about Utah from where they come. Right. And, um, what I, what I want to do now, what we want to do now is bring our audience into this uh, with their questions and comments. And uh, Mark Curtis will bring some to highlight on the screen. We will uh, read these and talk about them. So from Kelsey Morelzi, thank you for coming in here. Are the current practices in the temple consistent with what Joseph taught? Wow, diving in deep. Thanks, uh, Mark. How many hours are we on this thing? <laughs> um, Sorry, I know you probably have an answer to that. Um, I will say um, shortly because this is one of the one of the responses that I've gotten to in talking about this is people are like, all right, so our temple ceremonies are completely BS and we should throw them out. Is that what you're saying? And that's not what I'm saying. Um, the answer to how we need to view the t- current temple ceremonies is found in um, Mosiah, Mosiah 13. Um, Mosiah 13. I think I may have put that in a Can slide. you pull that up for us, Mark? Mark Mosiah 13, I believe it's um, it's a verse, I got it right here, um, verse 29. Okay. I can read it now, or if you wanted to bring it up. Give me uh, about 20 seconds. Go ahead and read it, though. Okay. So, um, this is Abinadi speaking to King Noah um, and giving his sermon. And if we look at the, so we got to look into scripture to understand um, everything, right? And regarding the law of Moses, which was the temple-based ritualistic worship of the Jews, here's what Abinadi had to say about that. He said in 29, And now I say unto you that it is expedient that there should be a law given to the children of Israel, yea, even a very strict law, for they were a stiff-necked people, quick to do iniquity, and slow to remember the Lord their God. Therefore, there was a law given them, yea, a law of performances and ordinances, a law which they were to observe strictly from day to day to keep them in remembrance of God and their duty towards him. So, the law of Moses, the 613 laws and the performances and ordinances in the temple of the Israelites, while it came from God, the correct perspective that we have to have is that it was a backstop to keep them in remembrance of the Lord their God and their duty towards them. 
But he says in here that no, in, in uh, verse 28, and moreover, I send you that salvation doth not come by the law alone. And were it not for the atonement of God, which God himself shall make for the sins and iniquities of his people, that they must unvoidably perish, notwithstanding the law of Moses. And, and in 27, he says the same thing. And now ye have said that salvation cometh by the law of Moses. I say unto you that it is expedient that ye should keep the law of Moses as yet. But I say unto you that the time shall come when it shall no more be expedient to keep the law of Moses. Nephi taught that that the law of Moses is Why? Because of their iniquity. They were- Hang on, we were muted. Back up, back up to a couple sentences. So what what uh, Abinai is teaching is like, yeah, there's a law. There's a law of performance and ordinances. However, it was given to the Israelites because of their iniquitous apostasy, not because of their righteousness. And I think we got that backwards as we look to our temples as the pinnacle of what it means to be a, a disciple of Christ. It's it's not the pinnacle. It's it's a backstop. Therefore, the law the law of Moses for us today is the performances and ordinances that we have as LDS people are in the temples, right? Right. And the in according to Abinadi, therefore there was a law given them, yea, a law of performances and ordinances, a law which they were to observe strictly from day to day. To oh, which verse was that? Thirty. Thirty. Okay. To keep them in remembrance of God and their duty towards Him. And so the narrative that I see in scripture, and you're totally welcome to see different narratives and people will, is that in response to iniquity, in response to what I described as sift naked people, quick to do iniquity and slow to remember the Lord their God. If that was the case with the early saints in Nauvoo, then the establishment of performances and ordinances, a temple ritual based religion was to keep us in remembrance of the Lord their God, not as a pinnacle or an ascension in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but more as a backstop or to try and stop the slide of apostasy until there's a generation that could come forward in a future day and build upon that foundation. So my understanding, and you don't have to take this as, as gospel, is that there's utility to what's in the temples there is purpose to it that is a good purpose as long as we have the right perspective on what it is and what it's not and i think i think that's probably the most important thing to understand out of all of it and then uh, in terms of really the technical portion um there there are plenty of instances where we see washing anointing References to endowment or endowment of power going on in the scriptures. We wouldn't have time to go into those here, um, but that's a good question. But the but the essence of the general practices inside the temple are definitely founded in Joseph Smith's teachings. However, there is room for a lot of splintering in terms of some of the specifics. More than anything, what they mean, and that goes exactly back to what Ryan was just barely saying. Because at the end of the day. Um, a relationship with Jesus Christ is the only thing that means anything. Mm-hmm. And so going through the motions of the temple, we've been taught is what saves us. And we're not seeing with our own eyes that exact same pattern that you're talking about in the scriptures that that won't mm-hmm. save you, that only Jesus Christ can. So, but excellent question. I wish we had more time for that one, but yeah. let's look. Um, 
before okay for for Charles Charles uh, question here Ryan do your comparison between King Noah and Brigham Young if you would oh um yeah there's there's quite a few I mean that's on the heels of this chapter right here because Abinadi was speaking uh, to Wicked King Noah and um, some of the fruits of of uh, of King Noah was he was he constructed many buildings. Um, he was um, he was an empire builder in similar ways to Brigham Young. Um, he practiced polygamy in the same as Brigham Young, and um, and an interesting side note: um, the 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 um, the house everybody's familiar with the lion house in Salt Lake City. Um, and why was the lion chosen as a representative of that house as like the coat of arms for um, um, Brigham's family and so forth? Lions are um, the most well-known polygamists in the animal kingdom with um, the male ruling the pride of multiple. Oh yeah. I never thought about that. Never thought about that. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's the motivation behind it, but it's an interesting parallel. It's a, it's um, a coincidence so at least. <laughs> if, if there are parallels between um, King Noah in the book of Mormon and what he was doing to appear to be a, um, a prosperous leader that was leading his people in building an empire um, that seemed to be paralleled with some of the efforts of um, of uh, Brigham Young, especially with the polygamy, but that's, we'd have to go through that and see how closely those parallels are too. But it's something that is somebody wants to study on. It's, it's an interesting perspective to, to have on that. And I'm going to get in trouble. Thanks a lot, Cheryl. So here's another two part comment from Cheryl. She just wants to make this clarification with a helpful resource. Oh yeah. She's got the, uh, yeah, the Nog temple wasn't completed. She asserts uh, that Brigham Young actually had stated that the St. St. George temple was the first temple to be completed. And then she gives a source on that. Uh, we've got here journal discourses, volume one, page 227. And then again, later in volume four, page 42. And then again, later in volume 19, page 220. And then, Again, in volume 18, page 304. So check those out. And, uh, yeah, that is something that that is an interesting because I think in the at the end of the day, pretty much everyone could concede that the temple wasn't actually finished. So yeah, thanks, Cheryl. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Cheryl. So Truth Junkies, what was Ryan's favorite evidence of the Heartland model of the Book of Mormon? Okay, so going back to the Heartland model, was there – was there a specific thing that you just really loved above all others? You gave that example of the mound of the ancient Jaredites and Joseph's um, yeah. mention of that, which was seemingly prophetic, right? So uh, would, would you call that one your favorite evidence, or is there something else that you really like? Well, the most important things to me are what have been spoken by a still small voice, but that's not helpful to anybody else. Um, probably, I, don't know, I think it is. <laughs> go, go seek your own answers. Right? I mean, <laughs> if you if you go to these places with the Book of Mormon in the back of your mind, or read it at some of these uh, places where the Hopewell Mound Builders sites have remained, these massive earthen complexes that are four square miles or uh, huge mounds. If you go, then need to, 
special experiences were happening. Um, we've done, I've done, I don't know, countless tours um, to a lot of these mound builder sites and uh, people have really amazing experiences there. And I've, I've experienced that too. If you're ever in the um, Midwest, go visit the Newark Earthworks and uh, Mound City, um, Sipe Mound, uh, Chillicothe Valley. Um, there's a lot of these earthen embankments and these earthworks that um, are still there today. You know, 98% of them have been destroyed, but there's still massive complexes that you can walk and see it for yourself and see if it matches the description in the Book of Mormon where Moroni heaped up great heaps of earth and dug deep ditches to uh, fortify all the cities throughout all the land. See if, see if those parallels fit um, your own mind. So my favorite sites are walking these mounds. Um, that's not what converted me to the idea um, is more supporting things that I've already knew to be true from, from a um, understanding of the scriptures and a spiritual level. Uh, but it's fun. It's fun to explore these. And uh, I've been doing it for 10 years and I can't get enough of it. It's, it's pretty fun. Okay. Here's one. This one might get you in trouble too. Who knows? From Again, from Kelty Moralzi. Thanks, Kelty. Do you think the church leaders know this, referring to the the history about the Nabu Temple, etc., and are hiding it? Or do you think they are oblivious to these facts of history? I can't speak for them. I don't know. Darn it. Uh, I don't know. I haven't had the chance to uh, hash this over with anybody in the Corner of 12. Um, I almost had the chance, but uh, it didn't work out. Um, what I can say is something that we talked about the other day. Um, you brought up a point um, that that it, the pattern in the Doctrine and Covenants for when we do suffer the cursings of God, when God admits a, a curse to people, he often says that it's up until the, he'll visit that curse upon the heads of the third and fourth generation. Right. And, um, and if we take the ge- biblical generation as being about 40 years or so, that puts us in the conclusion of the fourth generation right about now, right about now or just before now. And so what is that cursing? And uh, we had this conversation just last night um, that if the cursing is blindness, the inability to see things, um, to be stuck in a rut of rituals, of performances and ordinances for 170 years, the blindness, if that is the cursing, and I don't know that it is, I'm just proposing that it might be, then we have to provide grace to those that are in this mist of darkness including myself, including you, including everybody else, that the mist of darkness is so pervasive and so thick that you can't make a judgment call on whether somebody is willfully disobeying God or they're ignorantly blinded. And I, and so the question is asking, do you know or believe whether they're willfully ignorant or willfully blinded or um, in open rebellion against the truth or blind at the end of the day, you know, the outcomes may be the same, but I would, I would caution to rush to judgment on anybody to say that I know what the, that they're being open, re, openly rebellious against God. Cause they might have, they might be in this mist of darkness and this blindness that, uh, that I've felt that we've all felt in just wanting to 
have the security and comfort of our own little cocoon that all is well in Zion. I would have to agree there in a general sense. Um, I think for anyone listening and that has that same question that the Kelsey uh, proposed, I would suggest something along the lines of, well, I can't know personally since I haven't talked to any of them. But the the scriptures may or may not uh, lay out the answer to that question. So, uh, we don't have time to go over those, but I can say that much that uh, it, it appears to me that prophets that did see us in our day, you mentioned Roni being one of them, um, they had a lot to say on stuff at least related to that question, if not that question exactly. So uh, I would point to all of the prophets from Isaiah to Malachi. I'd point several through the Book of Mormon, including Moroni, as Ryan mentioned, that he said, I'm, I see you. I know what you're up to, and I'm going to talk to you. Uh, I think that's significant, but I can't say it. So I can just say they said it. I can't say it, mm-hmm. and we don't have enough time to go go through all those. But I did want to at least mention that. And it's a, that's that's a question for for God, really. Um, if we believe in the promise of Moroni that we can know the truth of all things, then we can. Then we can know the truth of that question. And so, even though I received answers. Um, for that question or similar question for myself. If I was to tell you what those answers were for me, then that's like saying, I want you to believe in me or trust in me, which would be wrong. And that would be an error also. Um, Everybody has to come to go on that journey for themselves. And if the answer comes from God, then that's the best source that you can get. So I wish I could uh, answer that, but it's it's not a question I can. No, I, I'm perfect. I think that's a perfect answer because I think that's what everyone needs to hear is what the scriptures already said about it. So, so thanks, Ryan, and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we'll wrap up that again. Make sure to check out, come back and check out the links in our description. We'll get those uh, uploaded within the next few days, so you guys can come check out those sources. Uh, thank you so much, Ryan, for being on here. Looking forward to chatting soon, and. Uh, also included will be the link to uh, his presentation he gave on this uh, topic, which is available on YouTube as well. So thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me.